The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be jumping back into the story of ACDC right from where we left off. In part one we discovered what life was like growing up as Bon Scott and Malcolm and Angus Young, how ACDC first formed the band's early shows, and the moment Bond replaced original lead singer Dave Evans to front ACDC for the very first time. So if you haven't yet listened to part one, I highly recommend checking that out first. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is ACDC, part two, the Bond Scott era. This is Lyrics of Their Life. As mentioned in part one, on the 5th of October 1974, ACDC performed with an excited Bon Scott for the very first time at the Masonic Hall in Rockdale, New South Wales, as he impressed both the crowd and his bandmates. And it's believed Bon was pretty proud of his efforts as he told Irene that the crowd loved him. Bon was said to have done a gram of cocaine before coming on stage and performed with a bottle of bourbon or whiskey in his hand and drank it while he was performing. But despite this, he was unreal. He had stage presence that some described as an aura. He had a killer rock scream, unique gravelly Aussie vocals. He performed with confidence, was quite rude and cocky, but a cheeky larrikin who had that infectious jokester appeal. Bon was said to have been running around on stage, wearing his wife Irene's knickers on his head, and the crowd absolutely loved his energy. The pubs and clubs loved hiring ACDC from this point onwards, and they were great for business. The women loved him, and wanted to be with him, and the men wanted to be his mate, and share a beer or two with him. The first show was followed by a gig on the roof of Victoria Park Pool in Camperdown, Sydney. Irene, of course, travelled alongside him, despite being over life on the road, as they then travelled back to Melbourne for Bond's first gig at the Hard Rock Cafe, before returning to Adelaide at the Largs Pier Hotel, where Bond's relationship would sadly come to an end during October 1974. Bond and Irene decided to split up, with the divorce not being settled until much later in 1978. They both had decided they wanted different things in life, with Bond's main priority being music, with the final straw being an argument over money. Bond hadn't been a great husband for some time now, and on this particular day, Bond was supposed to see Irene before taking off down to the pub at the Largs Pier Hotel for the gig, and instead just dumped his bag in the hallway and left out the door with all their rent money without consulting Irene first. With Irene stating, quote, I absolutely lost it. It's not like Bon had been living out of my pocket 
and wasn't really like him to take a big pile of money like that. But it wasn't his money. The fact that it was our rent money was a very big deal to me. My sister Faye and I were very responsible with paying our rent on time. It was something we took seriously. Bon hadn't really paid the rent for some time himself, and him taking the money sent Irene into a rage, as it reminded her of her sacrifices she and the other wives made back in England with fraternity. Irene came down to the pub, where Bon with ACDC had just finished their first set and were enjoying a quick break. Bon was just about ready to perform the second set when Irene came down yelling at Bon for what he had done, only for Bon to deny it or use the excuse that he had no money. After a heated and vocal argument, Irene with her sister Faye, who had been living with the couple, headed home and packed all of Bon's stuff up, ready to kick him out. Bon, who was no doubt embarrassed after being condemned in front of his new bandmates, wouldn't return until the following day as he came back and chucked her a wad of cash, repaying what he had owed her, and then he told her that it's over between us. Irene, however, says she got the last word in, saying, your bags are already packed. Despite things being heated between them, for some time, they did remain friends, and Irene was especially forgiving and loyal to Bon, despite how things went down. Irene would soon move on with another man named Nick, while Bon, of course, did the same with countless other women. With a fresh lineup of Angus and Malcolm Young, Bon Scott, Rob Bailey and Peter Clack, Malcolm made the decision to drop the cringeworthy outfits of the previous Dave Evans era, after a new band on the rise called the Skyhooks became popular within Australia with their outlandish costumes. Not wanting to be a copycat and to have their own image, Malcolm told everyone to revert back to skin-tight jeans and singlets, but told Angus to keep the schoolboy look as it was popular with the crowd and it was unique. Due to Angus wearing the outfit, many fans questioned Angus's age, who was actually around the age of 20 to 21 at the time, so they decided to trick the fans by saying he was only about 15 to suit the schoolboy character look. Bond would then shave off his goatee from his fraternity days and revert to a clean-shaven look, along with two small circular earrings in each of his ears. He had missing teeth from brawling, he had tattoos, messy hair, a hairy chest with a slim build, and he would often perform with no shirt on and skin-tight jeans that were quite revealing to the female audience, with what Bon liked to refer to his privates as, two eggs and a sausage. Bon was a bit crude and foul at times, but hilarious and down-to-earth at the same time, with a twisted sense of humour. He was described as headstrong and that he gave zero shits what anybody thought about him. ACDC would return to Sydney for live gigs and the club scene during early November 1974, where they even landed a couple of support gigs for Black Sabbath and were said to have even showed up Ozzy Osbourne and his band, making ACDC a very tough act to follow. Ozzy Osbourne would speak highly of ACDC and especially took a liking to Angus Young and Bon Scott. And if you know Ozzy well, his memory isn't the best as he thought the tour was actually in 1971. As he was quoted as saying, They opened for Black Sabbath in 1971, I think, in Sydney, Australia. Angus, he played meat and potatoes. That's what I like about them. There ain't no one to touch Angus Young for that groove. You could bang your head all day and night and not get fed up. 
They worked their asses off. When I was in Sabbath, I used to say, why don't we try doing a fucking danceable kind of riff? Also in November 1974, with Bon as ACDC's new lead singer, and George Young and Harry Vander working as their producers, through the small Australian label, Albert Productions, ACDC headed straight for the studio on the fifth floor of King Street at Sydney's Albert Studios to record their debut album titled High Voltage, the Australian-only edition. Due to budget restraints, ACDC were determined to record the album as quickly as possible, so therefore, their first album was recorded in just 10 days. In order to record the album in this time frame and earn cash to pay for the studio time, they would perform a high-energy gig during the evening, then race down to the studio afterwards to record until dawn every night for the 10 days. Bass guitarist Rob Bailey remained solely a live performer and was replaced during the recording process by George and Malcolm Young on bass. While the drummer Peter Clack only played drums on the band's lead single called Baby Please Don't Go after the tiring schedule got the better of him. Replacing Pete during the recording sessions for the rest of the album would be an Italian immigrant named Tony Carenti who would never actually play live with the band or ever be considered as a fully-fledged member despite his contribution on drums. Tony had met the band through George Young and Harry Vander after he had worked with them with a band of his own called Jackie Christian and Flight. Tony also knew of Bon from the music scene prior to ACDC and despite being asked to join the band, he had no choice but to decline due to issues surrounding his Italian citizenship and passport, which would prevent him from touring England and Europe as he would instead be made to serve in the Italian military if he did travel with these issues. Tony was also very committed and loyal to his band Jackie Christian and Flight as he chose to discontinue his time with ACDC. Tony continued playing for a number of bands, he remained a session musician and even started up his very own pizzeria in Penhurst, Sydney. Both George Young and Harry Vander did a brilliant job of producing ACDC's first album as they managed to keep it simple by capturing the raw live sound on the record, which really began a trend in Australia of recording albums this way. The reason they were able to capture this sound was because they would get the boys to record fresh from performing a gig so they were still buzzing and down to rock. After a big recording session to around 4 in the morning, they would hit the water or the beaches as their favourite pastime together and go fishing or cruise around in the harbour on a boat before going back and gigging and then to the recording studio and doing it all over again. During mid-January 1975, ACDC decided to make changes to the band once again, with drummer Peter Clack and bass guitarist Rob Bailey being let go. Drummer Peter Clack was replaced briefly once again by Russell Coleman, who returned to the band, but he too was let go again when they found a better replacement in Phil Rudd, who would go on to become one of the band's longest-serving drummers. Bass guitarist Rob Bailey's replacement would be George Young for the time being, until they were able to hire Mark Evans on bass during March 1975. Phil Rudd was just over a year older than Angus and had been born and raised in Melbourne when he auditioned for the band and got in straight away. Mark Evans, on the other hand, was also born and raised in Melbourne and was a year younger than Angus. 
This lineup would luckily be locked in for a few years to come, including the 20-year-old Angus Young, 22-year-old Malcolm Young, 21-year-old Phil Rudd, 19-year-old Mark Evans, and the oldest of the lot, 29-year-old Bon Scott. As their manager Michael Browning was located in Melbourne, the music scene was booming down there and the Sydney audiences were turning stale. From around the 20th of January 1975, Angus and Malcolm decided to relocate ACDC from Sydney to Melbourne permanently in order to further themselves on the live scene with a fresh audience, just a month out from their debut album's release. The members of ACDC would all live together in a small house in St Kilda, where they would write new material, jam together and enjoy life as a touring rock band. While they still often travelled to Sydney for gigs, Melbourne was such a fresh new scene for the band and by this point they had improved as a band significantly and were ready to go to the next level. Then on the 25th of January 1975, ACDC was slated to perform at the 4th Annual Sunbury Music Festival that was being headlined by Deep Purple and included a range of Aussie bands like the Skyhooks, Sherbet, Daddy Cool and Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. It was a cold, miserable, windy and wet day, however, and was described as a mud bath. Angus revealed about the gig, quote, We were playing in this pub on Saturday, and this manager got a hold of us and said, Listen, can you guys whiz out to this Sunbury place? The guy promoting it was a bit worried. He said, Deep Purple doesn't look like they're going to go on stage. He was a bit worried that no one was going to show, and he didn't want the kids to riot. So he thought, well I'll get ACDC and maybe they can keep them at bay. ACDC arrived ready to play in Deep Purple's place, only for Deep Purple to finally arrive in Rolls Royces, where they declared that they were here to play. ACDC were assured that they would still be part of the festival, even though Deep Purple had arrived, with Angus quoted as saying, everything was cool as far as we knew. Then at the last minute, something happened. Somebody said somebody threw a punch at our manager, one of Deep Purple's tour guys. We were all bunched up in this caravan changing. I remember we all came running out. A heated argument with Deep Purple's management and roadies had broken out, which resulted in a fistfight taking place backstage. Chaos then erupted as a forklift driver came to the aid of the local boys ACDC and dropped some stage equipment onto the Deep Purple security guards. Bon Scott being a known brawler, who was always up for a fight, was then said to have joined in on the action, with Angus saying, quote, Bon had someone in a headlock, and the guy was spinning him in the air, and Bon's shouting, Don't worry guys, I've got him, and Bon's spinning away. Angus then jumped onto stage, and told the crowd, quote, I got on the microphone, and I said to the kids at the front, because they'd started coming over the fence, I said, Hey, we need a bit of a hand up here. With tensions exploding between the two bands, the festival organisers managed to calm everybody down and it was decided that Deep Purple would go on first, followed by ACDC, to which they finally both agreed. Angus and Deep Purple lead vocalist David Coverdale remembers that Deep Purple played a part of their set and then walked off before the brawling all kicked off once again. David Coverdale of Deep Purple was quoted as saying, After a less than satisfactory performance, we left the stage, got in our cars, and started to drive away from the site. Suddenly we heard music coming from the stage. Apparently a young Aussie band had jumped on stage, 
plugged into our gear and started playing. Well, all hell broke loose. From what I was told, our roadies, big buggers to a man, wrestled with the young band to get them off our equipment and off the stage. Chaos and frolics ensued. Anyway, lo and behold, these ballsy lads were none other than a new band called ACDC. I cracked up when I heard. I thought it was great. With the brawl breaking out once again between ACDC and the roadies, after ACDC had just come on, they were then refused the right to play and were told to leave without taking to the stage for a full song. The festival itself turned out to be a flop. It fell into financial ruin and would be the last one to be held with just 16,000 attending and Deep Purple, the only band to be paid in full with the price of tickets and the weather conditions contributing to the losses. Deep Purple, on the other hand, earned themselves a huge $60,000, which they later helped pay the rest of the bands, as they had not been paid and thought it was unfair. The members of ACDC and Deep Purple would make up over the brawl in the coming years by sharing some drinks together and can now laugh about it fondly, with Angus quoted as saying, We never got to play in the end, but the next day, that was all you read about. ACDC in Brawl with Deep Purple. In the end, it elevated us. More people came to see us. On the 17th of February, 1975, ACDC released their debut album, High Voltage, to the Australian public. Despite giving up their glam rock attire, the sound of their first album still had hints of glam rock about it, and it was quite clear that they were still trying to find their perfect sound, with a few inconsistent tracks spread throughout. The album artwork created by Richard Ford, however, perfectly captured what ACDC would come to be renowned for as being rough-and-tumble Aussie rockers. As the artwork displays a high-voltage transformer being urinated on by a mongrel dog and a number of beer cans scattered around with barbed wire running along the front of the image displaying their dangerous hard-hitting attitude and high energy as a band. Despite having limited funds for promoting their album, the High Voltage album did however manage to peak at number 14 on the Australian album chart and sold reasonably well at the time, selling around two to 3,000 copies, which was massive for Australia during those days. High Voltage would go on to sell around 350,000 copies in Australia to this very day, eventually going five times platinum in the country. Angus, Malcolm and Bon shared the songwriting duties on the album, with the standouts including their lead single, which was a cover of Big Joe Williams' Baby Please Don't Go, performed in a great rock and roll style, displaying Bon's unique vocals, and it even became the band's first Australian hit, peaking in the top 10. Released alongside Baby Please Don't Go was a track titled Love Song, Oh Jean, which was vastly different to anything ACDC would ever do. The song was exactly as the title suggests, a love song, as Bond grovels over a lost lover named Jean, who was never confirmed to be a real person, as Bond attempts to persuade her to stay. Much later in their careers, Angus would confess that out of all the songs they ever did, this one he regrets the most, just because it was so cheesy, and that they were simply just trying to create a song that would be radio-friendly for that style that was popular at the time. Love Song would rarely be played live and was removed from set lists pretty quickly. Love Song was actually set to be the lead single, but luckily DJs decided to flip it to the B-side and play Baby Please Don't Go instead, 
which proved to be the direction they wanted to head in anyway. While Love Song is often overlooked and held in regret with Angus Young, it is actually a really beautiful and underrated track and raises the question, was the woman mentioned in the song, named Jean, really a representation of Irene Thornton and how he regretted the way things ended? Or was it simply just another fling he shared in the past? Bond never commented on what the true meaning behind the song was. Despite some of the band members not liking the song, fill-in drummer for the recording session, Tony Carrenti, said it was his favourite song. In the song Soul Stripper, on the High Voltage album, Angus and Malcolm share guitar solos of their own, and in the cheeky Bon Scott tune, She's Got Balls, ACDC hint at the tongue-in-cheek and pub rock direction the band would go in on their next album. Bon wrote She's Got Balls about his ex-wife Irene Thornton, just before the pair split up, after she had asked him to write a song about her. Perhaps expecting a love song, Bond decided to write She's Got Balls about how tough of a woman she was for standing up to him a lot of the time and how she is independent and can handle herself just as good as any man could. Bond was famously quoted as saying, I was married at the time when I first joined the band and my wife said, why don't you write a song about me? So I wrote She's Got Balls, then she divorced me. Bon was also believed to have wrote the song while in a drunken state, and Bon told Mojo Magazine, quote, When I listen to it back the next morning, I think, hey, did I say that? Did I think that? But out of it, you can usually get some pretty good stuff. I'd play it for my mum, and if she said that's not very nice, I'd keep it. The track Little Lover drops into a slower style beat, and sees Bond singing about an irresistible fangirl who is getting turned on at one of his gigs and making him all hot and flustered, as Bond delivers some of his best lyrical work of his early career with the raunchy and controversial lines reading, Saw you in the front row, moving to the beat, just moving and grooving. Killed me when I saw the wet patch on your seat. Was it Coca-Cola? Oh baby, I hope you liked the show. When the band said goodnight, I had to say hello. With the release of High Voltage, ACDC continued to gig non-stop in both New South Wales and Victoria, and often even performed up to two or three shows in the one day. The crowd numbers were pretty good, but they just needed something to spark a bit more interest in them. But during March 1975, a huge break would come for ACDC when they were invited to perform on the popular new music variety show called Countdown, on the ABC network, hosted by music journalist Molly Meldrum. The performance would forever remain in the minds of many Australians, who witnessed ACDC's first ever TV performance that evening, as Angus appeared in his blue schoolboy attire for the very first time on national TV, while Bond managed to steal the show with a rendition of Baby Please Don't Go, while shocking the audience by dressing in drag. ACDC chose that song, as it was quite well known at the time, being a cover, and Bomb would be the talk of the nation, as he appeared wearing large hooped earrings, a long-haired blonde piggy-tail wig, makeup with purple eyeliner, and fake breasts hidden beneath a private schoolgirl's dress, with his tattoos and manly features prominent at the same time. For this time, it was quite unheard of and controversial, however it was memorable and got people talking. It's believed that Bomb wanted to make a tongue-in-cheek statement about the sissy state of rock and roll music with the emergence of glam rock 
and to show that they didn't take themselves too seriously and were knockabout Aussie larrikins. Some found the act to be strange and too much, while others began wondering, who are these guys? They're edgy and awesome. The performance was so unexpected that even host Molly Meldrum was shocked and caught off guard. ACDC continued to gig after the countdown appearance around New South Wales and Victoria, and it was clear to see their popularity was on the rise. They went from performing for 50 to 100 people to around 500, once Australian radio also started getting behind them. Then by mid-year, they were playing to around 5,000 people at festivals and venues such as the Horton Pavilion in Sydney. ACDC were the perfect band for Aussie audiences, especially the rough-and-tumble Aussie battlers, the working-class everyday Australian, and those that just love good hard pub rock or rock and roll. It was finally something for Australians to relate to. However, while this would eventually become their normal audience, they at first had a majority of young female fans who were drawn in by Bond's charismatic and cheeky frontman persona, despite not necessarily being the most physically attractive guy. While living together in St Kilda, the boys would party and drink heavily all night, with Bon especially leading the drinking sessions, as he liked to drink straight from the bottle and would wake up and do it all again, with it being said that Bon liked to gargle Coonawarra red wine with honey every morning when he woke up. Angus, however, would be the only one that didn't like to get on the drink, despite claiming he always had dealers offering him drugs after gigs. He especially despised drugs, and Angus would remain this way throughout his life, as he much preferred to have a cup of tea, or even some chocolate bars with milk, to get him through. Bon, on the other hand, was the wild child of the band, and liked to experiment with drugs and alcohol, with rumours often circulating that Bon even experimented with heroin during 1975, and that it almost cost him his job with the band, but ACDC often remained tight-lipped over this. From March through to July 1975, ACDC returned to Albert Studios in Sydney to record their much-anticipated follow-up album. George Young and Harry Vander would once again produce for the band, with Angus, Malcolm Bond, Mark Evans and Phil Rudd recording a majority of the tracks, with Tony Carrenti on drums and George Young on bass filling in on two of the tracks, including a cover of School Days by Chuck Berry, and an original that Malcolm and Angus wrote with Bond called High Voltage, which had been recorded earlier that year in January. Phil Rudd would be credited for drumming on the track High Voltage, despite it actually being Tony Carrenti. The album they were working on would once again just release to Australians and would be called TNT. It signalled the beginning of the classic ACDC sound that we would all come to know and love, as they finally figured out what style and direction they were headed in, as opposed to the experimental nature of their debut album. On the 23rd of June 1975, ACDC released the first single from their TNT album, titled High Voltage. The track High Voltage was originally slated to feature on their debut album High Voltage, but was instead held back for their second album. High Voltage would perfectly capture the Aussie pub rock sound and ACDC style and managed to chart at number 6 in Australia. The simplistic but catchy song speaks about the energy ACDC brings as a band being electric and full of high energy, or as the lyrics state, high voltage, rock and roll. 
High Voltage would go on to become one of the band's biggest anthems, and one that the fans loved to engage with at live gigs, where they screamed back the lyrics to Bon. Angus was interviewed much later in 1993 by Vic Garbani, where he revealed, quote, I remember sitting at home one night before getting into the studio and playing around with some chords, and I suddenly thought, let's try playing ACDC. Sounded good. And then I thought, ACDC power, high voltage. I sang the chorus part to my brother in the studio, and he thought it sounded great. ACDC's high voltage tour would take them into the TNT tour without any breaks in between. The boys live for the road and just absolutely love to play live. From June to December of 1975, they would travel across various states of Australia, growing their fan base every time they stepped foot in a new venue. Then on the 1st of December, 1975, ACDC released their second Australian-only album, titled TNT. The tracks on this album were their best yet, as they encapsulated the Aussie culture and their raw high-powered rock and roll style into some killer anthems like Rock and Roll Singer, The Jack, It's a Long Way to the Top, and TNT. Malcolm Angus and Bon Scott would write eight of the nine tracks for the album, with it managing to chart at number two in Australia, almost grabbing them their first number one album. One of the most underrated tracks from the album, titled Rock and Roll Singer, sees Bon Scott singing about his dream of becoming a rock and roll star, and that nothing or no one can change his mind, no matter the expectations placed on him by his parents. Other solid tracks include Rocker and Livewire, where Bond sings about his wild nature and erratic behaviour, all while referring back to electrical currents and their high-voltage energy as a band, with Livewire remaining the band's opener for many years to come. While on the album, Bond also put his vocals to ACDC's first single with Dave Evans called Can I Sit Next to You Girl. One of the best tracks on the album was the bluesy rock song, The Jack, which sees Bond displays brilliant lyrical skills as he refers to a game of cards or poker to mask the true meaning behind the song, as he is actually talking about contracting sexually transmitted diseases from sleeping with a woman who had actually been sleeping around with others. The STD in question is in fact gonorrhea, or also known as the clap, which in the song is instead represented by the phrase the jack. As Bond sings the brilliant lines, she gave me the queen, she gave me the king, she was wheeling and dealing, just doing her thing. She was holding a pair, but I had to try. Her deuce was wild, but my ace was high. But how was I to know that she'd been dealt with before? Said she'd never had a full house, but I should have known from the tattoo on her left leg and the garter on her right. She'd have the card to bring me down if she'd played it right. She's got the jack. When questioned by Sounds magazine on the origin of the song's meaning, Bon replied, quote, We were living with this house full of ladies who were all very friendly and everyone in the band had got the jack. So we wrote this song and the first time we did it on stage, they were all in the front row with no idea what was going to happen. When it came to repeating, she's got the jack, I pointed at them one after another. Angus added to Bond's statement by saying, quote, After that, wherever we did the song, the girls in the audience would run to the back of the hall. 
When performing the song live, Angus would hilariously make it a regular occurrence where he would begin stripping down to his underwear as he imitates a game of strip poker. During the same interview, with Sounds, Bon was quoted as saying, One time, I had the jack, and this girl wanted fucking. And she was so ugly, I figured, shit, nobody else would have her, so she wouldn't spread it. But when we'd finished, she went next door to Phil Rudd, and gave it to him. And a few weeks later, she sent him a doctor's bill for $35 for the cure. Well, the next time she came to a show, I got her up on stage in the middle of the jack, and explained how she got it wrong, and it was me who owed her the money. The lyrics would later be altered for radio purposes, but there's no denying that the original studio version is the better of the two. The song Live Wire was also originally much more sexually descriptive, which made some criticise their lyrics for being smutty or sexist, although Angus saw this differently and told Tom Bojor on Guitar World in 1998, quote, I believe that the politically correct term is sexist. Intellectuals like to put a tag on it and say, these guys are out and out sexist. I've always found there's a two-sided thing when it comes to lyrics. Someone can call a song sexy motherfucker and be accepted, and yet we've been writing all songs all these years, and while there may be the rare fuck in the lyrics there somewhere, it's all been quite clean cut. Still, people just make the assumption that we're five guys who've just got our dicks in mind. People have frequently commented that for all the notoriety and things we got involved in, we could have capitalised on our reputation and said, oh yeah, we're a piece of nasty work, but why bother? Just a week after the release of the TNT album, on the 8th of December 1975, ACDC would release one of their greatest tracks of all time, and possibly the greatest, of the Bon Scott era, titled, It's a Long Way to the Top, If You Want to Rock and Roll, in what would be ACDC's most autobiographical song yet. Bon and the Young Brothers would write the song about their struggles to get to the point where they are at, and the difficulty of becoming a top rock and roll band through gigging night after night for years, as they mention the time they were left with no money by their manager in Adelaide, the women that they've slept with, staying in hotels and taking drugs, and the many brawls they've been involved in along the way. Angus told Rolling Stone magazine, quote, It's a long way to the top, really summed us up as a band. It was the audience that really allowed us to even get near a studio. The band as a whole were right on their game for this track, as Angus provided one of his most memorable riffs, while Bond's voice was outstanding. Long Way to the Top would not only be a catchy one-liner, but would be an anthem for all Australians to get behind, and the popularity of the track would see it peak at number 5 on the Australian charts, which was their best single charting position so far. Adding to the brilliance of the track was Bond's solo on the bagpipes, interlocking with Angus on lead guitar. All that hard work as a teenager, playing alongside his dad, back in the Fremantle Scots Pipe Band, despite being a drummer, had paid off, as Bond delivered one of the most unique but memorable performances from the ACDC catalogue, and one that is vastly different to anything that had been heard on radio at the time, as the bagpipes of course weren't a common instrument used on pop radio. 
What was even more special was the coming together of two cultures, as the boys were paying tribute to their Scottish roots and fusing this sound with their own Aussie sounding style of rock and roll, which was extremely relatable at the time due to the influx of Scottish immigrants to Australia. Despite the length of the single being over 5 minutes long, it is still a regular on Australian radio to this day. It's believed that the bagpipes used in this song would inspire another Aussie classic with You're the Voice by John Farnham also featuring them, as he was a huge fan of the ACDC track. George Young, the producer, actually came up with the idea to use the bagpipes, who encouraged the band to experiment with the instrument, as he knew of Bond's experience around the bagpipes in the Scottish Pipe Band when he was younger. Bond went out and purchased a set in Sydney's Park Street music store for an expensive $479, and returned to the studio to give it a try. Bond struggled to assemble the pipes at first and hadn't actually played them himself before, but after finally getting them set up, he started playing and taught himself to play just well enough to record the instrument in segments with the help of loops. This, however, made it difficult to perform with the bagpipes live, as Bond wasn't as comfortable to play them for the full duration of the song for a live audience, so they would rarely perform the track in full for that very reason. Instead, Angus would occasionally imitate the bagpipes by performing an extended solo in its place, or occasionally a backing track of the bagpipes would be played. The same set of pipes they had bought for the expensive price tag would sadly be destroyed by a number of fans at a gig at St Albans High School in Victoria. And much later, of course, when Bond passed away, the song would not be sung again live after his death. After Long Way to the Top had been released, ACDC manager Michael Browning sent away promo material to overseas labels, hoping to get a bite and land his band a deal with a major label. During late December 1975 and into early January 1976, ACDC caught a huge break when they were signed by the head of Atlantic Records, Phil Carson, for a deal that would see the band go international for the very first time. As ACDC had now become a successful band in Australia, they wondered if they could make it internationally and began planning on relocating overseas to tackle the UK scene and two of their last two albums. In order to further promote their latest album TNT and single It's a Long Way to the Top, ACDC filmed their first ever music video for the Australian TV show Countdown on the 23rd of February 1976. The video of course would help the track reach the position of number 5 in Australia and catapult ACDC into the homes of Aussies. In the music video, ACDC could be seen on the back of an open top flatbed truck driving through Swanston Street of the Melbourne CBD playing the song as four members of the Rats of Tobruk pipe band follow them by marching through the streets, and the Countdown camera crew captured the essence of the band perfectly, including Angus's showman ability on guitar, and Bond's cheeky brawler persona, while onlookers stopped to see what was going on. The final single from the TNT album was also titled TNT, and would become another huge anthem for ACDC, when it was released on the 1st of March, 1976. 
TNT was one of ACDC's heaviest rock tracks so far and featured the iconic Aussie chant of Oi, followed by some of their most memorable lines as Bond sings about not wanting to be a guy you want to mess with with his rough-and-tumble Aussie brawler attitude and explosive wild behaviour being compared to TNT and Dynamite. ACDC would also perform this track live on Countdown, which once again only furthered their popularity down under, as the track was basic rock and roll that embodied the working-class Aussie. From December 1975 to March 1976, ACDC had been a very busy band and had already been heads down in Albert Studios, recording their third studio album, all while gigging around Australia, even taking themselves on gruelling touring schedules to rural areas in the central west of New South Wales, like Dubbo, Parks and Orange, as Bond would march into crowds with Angus on top of his shoulders, hyping up the crowd. ACDC had now reached a point where they had outgrown the Australian audiences. They were now the biggest band in Australia, and their music was all over the radio. Their manager Michael Browning revealed that one of the major reasons for the band wanting to test the waters in other countries was the fact that a majority of their fan base were female and they feared they would become just another boy band like the Easy Beats or Beatles if they didn't leave. Having plied their trade down under, they were now ready to go to the next level and take their band global, with plans now laid out to travel to London. As ACDC's manager Michael Browning said, quote, while the whole idea really about the UK was that because of the size of the place and the concentration of the media, you could actually get something going there very fast. If you start to make it in the UK, you start to get somewhat of an international vibe and then you branch out from there. That was the strategy, to go there and get it happening in a market that's watched by the rest of the world. In other words, the US, UK and European markets just weren't really interested or focus their attention on Aussie bands or artists that were solely based in Australia. During April 1976, ACDC were interviewed by Countdown's Molly Meldrum before they left for the UK as they were set to begin their next big adventure as a band. Here we are at Mascot Airport to say farewell to ACDC. First of all, over the last six months, it's just gone like that banging to the charts. And a lot of pop critics were su surprised. What do you sort of, what do you think you owe your success to? Uh, it's nothing to do with us at all. It's just our success is due to the taste of the public. Well, you've just lost me for work. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it was a hard climb for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, we worked 80 bucks a night for a while, but Angus sort of, you know, put his, got his short drawn up a bit and sort of back out, you know. So what's going to be released in, in, in the UK? It's a combination of the High Voltage and the TNT album. Together? Together. As one album? There's one album yeah. called High Voltage. And have they chosen a single for that yet? Yeah, no, one way at the top. top. That's released today in England. Yeah? Yeah. Now whose idea was it to put the bagpipes into, into a long way to the top? George. Sorry? George. George Young. Yeah. He just said, uh, you know, there's a, a big break in there. Uh, can you play bagpipes? Why he thought of bagpipes, I'll never know. You know? And I sort of played a bit of recorder before in fraternity and other bands, you know. And 
sort of knew how to blow and finger, you know, so I just... <laughs> well, that was because you yeah, slang, huh? <laughs> So I, you know, played them. Huh? <laughs> now, there's, it's obvious that, that, that the band itself hasn't really styled itself off anything else, uh, no. as far as Australian bands are concerned. No. And it's just delivering rock and roll, hard rock and roll. Um, did that sort of gradually come as the band formed within itself? Yeah, well, um, we've always been a rock and roll band. Yeah. We, you know, like, that's always what we played, and yeah. um, that's what we always want to keep playing, it's rock yeah. and roll. Now, with the confidence of, of topping the charts in Australia now, and uh, and the success that, that this gradual follow-up that, that's happened, and now it's become a, a monster in Australia, are you going over confident that you can take on an English market? Yeah, well, we are confident. Yeah. We're not overconfident, but we are very confident. ACDC were originally scheduled to tour alongside a London-based rock band called Backstreet Crawler, but due to the death of their guitarist and former free member, Paul Kossoff, they decided to pull out of it, leaving ACDC's label to source out gigs at smaller venues to build up their following first on the Lock Up Your Daughters tour, which would be sponsored by the major rock music magazine, Sounds Magazine which at the time was one of the only major magazines still reporting on traditional rock as opposed to the rising punk scene. ACDC would arrive in London just in time for the rising punk rock movement that was sweeping the country with the popularity of bands like the Sex Pistols on the rise. ACDC, however, were labelled by the British tabloids as punk and managed to benefit off of the surge in hype around the new genre despite ACDC not being a punk band and actually despising the genre. The English and punk audiences loved their hard-hitting, high-energy performances and it played perfectly into their hands. As Angus told Guitar World in 1993 and was quoted as saying, At that time, we were giving punk music a good name because that was the word they used to describe us. Punk band. They'd get the wrong idea. We weren't punk, but they'd put us on the same bill as punk bands. And they sure got a shock when they started spitting at us and we spat back. We were never ones for getting slumped under a tag or filed under A, B or C. We started as a rock and roll band. That's why we play. What we do best. We never claim to be anything else. Angus himself would fit right into the punk mould when the UK audiences were first introduced to him as he was seen stripping down to his underwear in live performances and even mooning the crowd, which was something he had already been doing back in Australia. But in the UK, it was new, seen as edgy and punk. Without even really trying, their rough-and-tumble rock and roll style, mixed with lyrics about their tough lives, fit perfectly with the punk scene. Meanwhile in Australia, the void left by ACDC would be filled by Australian rock band The Angels, led by Doc Neeson. On the 23rd of April 1976, ACDC played their very first gig in the UK at the Red Cow in Hammersmith, London. In hilarious circumstances, Bon Scott had decided it would be fun to catch the tube down to the gig instead of the taxi with his bandmates. So he ended up arriving to his own gig at the Red Cow, surrounded by fans or attendees. The entranceway was so blocked up with fans that Bond wasn't able to get into the venue for some time. They were said to have impressed that evening when Bond did arrive on stage 
despite being a bit nervous, as they performed for a small audience that was basically empty during the first set, but by the second set, they had people flocking in. But with every show, the audience grew and grew that little bit more. At first they were mocked by the English audiences and were called things like wallaby rockers, kangaroo fuckers and wannabes, but that quickly changed. ACDC on the other hand, as they always did best, wouldn't change for anyone. ACDC continued to gig every night in London and then on the 30th of April 1976, they released their first international album called High Voltage featuring a cover photo of Angus in his high school uniform straddling his Gibson SG with a lightning bolt striking the ground on the front cover and would include a mixture of their best tracks from their first two Australian albums, TNT and High Voltage. While the album much later went on to sell close to 4 million copies worldwide, with 3 million of those being in the USA, at the time of its release, it was a moderate success and it still wasn't enough to see the band become stars on the UK or American market just yet. The American critics at the time in fact panned the album and failed to get the gist of what the Aussie rockers were trying to portray, with Billboard magazine comparing them as a cross between Led Zeppelin and a Glasgow band called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band while Billy Altman from the Rolling Stone magazine went a step further and absolutely discredited the band by stating, quote, Those concerned with the future of hard rock may take solace in knowing that with the release of the first US album by these Australian gross-out champions, the genre has hit an all-time low. Lead singer Bon Scott spits out his vocals with a truly annoying aggression, which I suppose is the only way to do it when all you seem to care about is being a star so that you can get laid every night. Stupidity bothers me, calculated stupidity offends me. From April through to July, ACDC travelled around the UK performing at clubs and bars just like they had done in Australia. It was like starting all over again for ACDC and was make or break for the band as they were practically broke but they knew the payoff would be worth it in the end if they kept going at it. Slowly but surely, after months of hard gigging, they began wooing crowds and the hype around them grew as they became known as the cheeky, rude and wild larrikins from Australia and became a well-known reputable band with a great live presence with Bon especially winning over the British crowds with his lovable rogue ways and Angus and his never-ending energy supply on guitar just kept the crowds wanting more. If a band got sheepish and pulled out of a gig last minute, ACDC were right there to snap it up and that's exactly what set them apart from the rest. They were willing to work hard to make it and didn't mind driving a couple of hours to a gig as they were used to it in Australia, with everything being pretty spaced out and far apart compared to the UK. Angus even started stripping off during shows, bearing his bottom and sometimes even his balls for all to see, which landed him in hot water a number of times and almost got him arrested. On tour, there was loads of sex and alcohol, with the boys earning the nickname The Seedies. Drugs were around, but Bon was really the only one that dabbled in it at the time, but overall, the band enjoyed their booze more than anything. Angus drank occasionally, but wasn't really into it, and preferred to smoke his cigarettes and drink his tea. And like his brother Malcolm, they were strongly against drugs. All members of ACDC, except for Bon Scott, 
weren't really into social parties with the stars, interviews or red carpets, as it just wasn't them. Instead, they enjoyed each other's company, and a lot of the time they just kept to themselves on the road, other than a couple of quiet drinks backstage with other bands. Bon, on the other hand, loved to head out to the clubs and party and have a good time. As ACDC toured the UK, they looked into scheduling shows in the US, however the interest from the Americans just simply wasn't strong enough yet, and any potential plans were scrapped. On the 14th of June, 1976, Australian ACDC fans would be the first to get a taste of the new album when the single Jailbreak was released. Jailbreak would then be released during August in the UK and Europe, but due to the hostile critics in America, ACDC didn't bother sending copies of the single or album to the States. Jailbreak would become yet another Australian classic that perfectly captured the convict lifestyle and of course paid homage to Australia's history, being used as a convict settlement and breaking away from authority. As Bond tells the story of a friend who was sent to jail to serve 16 years behind bars, as the character Bond portrays plots to break him out of jail. The prisoner escapes, but with a bullet in his back, which manages to kill him. It's been suggested that Bond was inspired to write the song after reading a newspaper article on Mark Chopper Reed who was also sent to jail for 16 years for murder, but Bond would never confirm this. While others also suggested that Bond drew inspiration from his own time in jail when he was younger, with this being the most likely scenario, with Angus confirming this by claiming that Bond had met this character while serving time in the Perth jail. Bond's lyrics in this song are simply brilliant, as he captures the feelings of despair from the prisoner, and claustrophobic feeling of going away for 16 years, being stuck inside a cell. As Bond sings the lines, There was a friend of mine on murder, and the judge's gavel fell. Yeah, jury found him guilty, gave him 16 years in hell. He said, I ain't spending my life here, I ain't living alone. Ain't breaking no rocks on the chain gang, I'm breaking out and heading home. Gonna make a jailbreak. Bond continues on to describe his woman playing up with another man on the outside, before describing the sound of gunfire and sirens, as Angus captures these sounds perfectly on his Gibson SG, before the prisoner is shot upon his breakout from the prison. To accompany the track, ACDC also released a music video for the TV show Countdown, where they filmed the video in the town of Albion in Melbourne, Australia, nearby to Bond's childhood home, in the suburb of Sunshine. For the video, they were seen wearing convict and guard style pyjama like clothing as they stood in a rocky quarry field, hammering away on sledgehammers and rocking away on their instruments, with Bond once again proving his brilliant frontman presence with many cheeky attitude field looks into the camera, before the boys act out the shootout scene in the end, resulting in the death of the prisoner. It's believed that this video was one of the first to include real explosions and even fake blood. For the first time, ACDC would travel to Europe and play a number of gigs in Sweden during July, before further gigs across the UK, Holland, Denmark, Belgium, Switzerland, France and Germany well into October 1976. During their time in London, they performed on the same bill as Motorhead and Valhalla 
While at the Marquee Club, they set new attendance records, but struggled when performing at the Reading Music Festival, as they failed to get the crowd into their performance. Then during September to October, they travelled around Europe, and would also support the band Rainbow, led by Richie Blackmore, formerly of Deep Purple. On the 20th of September, 1976, ACDC released their third studio album, titled Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap. The album peaked at number 5 in Australia and sold well eventually, clocking up to 600,000 copies sold, while also being a reasonable success in the UK and Europe. But at the time, the Americans failed to get behind their music once again, so the international version of the album wouldn't be released there until 1981, where it eventually managed to peak at number 3 and sold around 6 million copies in the US. The international version would be released during December, despite Atlantic Records being unhappy with the production and vocals on the album, which Mark Evans believes came close to getting the band dropped, and Bon Scott even sacked, after he was said to have been informed by the band's manager Michael Browning. Phil Carson, who had signed the band to Atlantic Records, recalls the A&R department saying, quote, We're sorry, but this album actually doesn't make it. We're not going to put it out, and we're dropping the band. So I went to Atlantic executive Nasui Etigan and showed him the sales figures that we'd got for high voltage. They were not awe-inspiring, but considering we'd only paid 25000 for the album, this was not so bad. Nasui backed me up, and I re-signed the band at that point. I managed to claw it back in, thank God. The album artwork on the Australian version of Dirty Deeds featured a cartoon-type drawing of Bon and Angus standing around a pool table, which in itself is still quite an iconic cover photo. But the international version itself is also very memorable, as it was created by Aubrey Powell of graphic company Hypnosis, and features a number of sleazy-looking characters placed in front of a dodgy-looking motel on the Sunset Strip, with their eyes all blanked out, with a black identity strip running across their face to emphasise that these characters are seedy, like the title of the album suggests. The album was heavily targeted at the British audience, and this was evident in the English rock style utilised throughout the album. Dirty Deeds included the track Love at First Feel, which gave off British rock band status quo vibes, as Bond sings about falling in love as soon as he is first touched by the irresistible woman in question. Despite having an obvious British influence, it also highlights the Australian culture and roughness of the Aussie streets that these boys grew up in. A fair chunk of the album sees Bond singing about his wild party boy persona and love for women of all types. This is reflective in the songs Big Balls, There's Gonna Be Some Rockin' and Squealer. In the track Big Balls, Bond provides some hilarious tongue-in-cheek lines as he compares his balls to a fancy high-end cocktail ball, with the lyrics reading, Some balls are held for charity, and some for fancy dress. But when they're held for pleasure, they're the balls that I like best. My balls are always bouncing, to the left and to the right. It's my belief that my big balls should be held every night. With the punk movement taking off in the UK, this song, of course, would be the closest ACDC ever got to punk, as Malcolm and Angus provide a punk-style riff on guitar, while Bon attempts to sing these crude lyrics in a royal or posh British accent. 
As big fans of Chuck Berry, ACDC would often write their sexualized lyrics in a humorous way in order to reduce the tension and the amount of scrutiny on their music, and it occasionally worked, as Chuck Berry did for songs like My Dingaling. In the song Ain't No Fun Waiting Around To Be A Millionaire, Bond reveals how slow the royalties or money comes in during the early days of being in a band, and it was even something he had written in a letter to Irene and his brother Graham when he first joined ACDC, that read, quote, If you can still manage the other $50, I'd love you forever. It's no fun waiting around to be a millionaire. One of the better songs from the album was called Problem Child, and features that good hard Aussie pub rock sound we know and love from ACDC. While it seems almost certain that Bon is singing about himself, when playing the song live, Bon would introduce the song and jokingly tell the audience that it was actually written about Angus Young. It's likely, however, to be a representation of all of the members of ACDC, with Angus saying, quote, I wasn't really a bad sort of kid. The track features Bon providing great high-energy screams as he sings about brawling and getting into trouble with authority, something that the punk movement was really embracing at the time in the UK. One of the greatest songs, and maybe the most underrated from ACDC's entire catalogue of music that was featured on the Dirty Deeds album, would have to be Ride On, which sees ACDC performing a more mellow, slow-paced blues rock tune, a huge contrast to their high-energy, attitude-filled tracks, as Bond bears his chaotic lifestyle for all to see. Ride On would see Bond appearing quite blue and sad, as he expressed in the lyrics that he is actually a lonely man who's a compulsive liar, known to break the hearts of the women he sleeps with, and that he has a bad drinking habit. This leads him to fill the void by sleeping with random women, despite it seeming he would like something more than just a one-night stand. But until he's ready to really settle down or change his ways, he's just going to continue to engage in this behaviour in the hopes happiness comes along or somebody can fix him. As Bond sings the lines, It's another lonely evening, in another lonely town, But I ain't too young to worry, and I ain't too old to cry. When a woman gets me down, got another empty bottle, and another empty bed, Ain't too young to admit it, and I'm not too old to lie, I'm just another empty head, that's why I'm lonely, I'm so lonely, But I know what I'm going to do, I'm gonna ride on. Standing on the edge of the road, Thumb in the air. One of these days, I'm gonna change my evil ways. Till then, I'll just keep riding on. Broke another promise, and I broke another heart. But I ain't too young to realise that I ain't too old to try. Bond continues as he appears to mention a pit stop at the red light district for some casual fun with a prostitute. As he sings, and it's another red light nightmare, and another red light street. The way in which Bond sings these lines almost appears as if he is ashamed of his behaviour, but can't seem to break out of his destructive ways, as he manages to hold back on screaming in this song, and instead uses more melody in his voice. It's a side of Bond that we didn't often see during his time with ACDC, but it could just be one of his best lyrical works in terms of expressing what he was really feeling deep down, and that perhaps he was taking the divorce of Irene harder than many thought, and was instead punishing himself for the way he treated her. Angus, on the other hand, displays just how great of a blues guitarist he can be, with a brilliant riff and solo. 
Phil on drums and Mark on bass provide a brilliant plodding beat, emphasising a down on his luck bon, while Malcolm provides beautiful sombre backing vocals to make the song a complete masterpiece and as a whole unit, they emphasise the loneliness and hopelessness that Bon is feeling at this point in time. Despite being one of the greatest songs from ACDC and a fan favourite, Ride On failed to chart, which is simply a disgrace. However, it is often played on alternative or classic rock radio stations to this very day in Australia. Another track that speaks of this loneliness is called Rip Rock In Peace, which would be only released on the Australian version of the album as Bon appears to once again be wallowing in his sorrows as he sings Leave me alone, like a dog with a bone, like a stone that's been thrown, let me be on my own. Perhaps these were early signs of Bond's struggles that many failed to notice or pick up on at the time, due to his wild, tough and charismatic personality often shining through, instead of really showing what he felt behind closed doors. Then on the 5th of October 1976, the single itself titled Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, was released to the Australian public and in early 1977 in the UK. Yet again, ACDC would produce another classic hit, despite only reaching number 29 in Australia and 34 in New Zealand at the time. Dirty Deeds was the ultimate Aussie pub rock tune that featured epic and perhaps one of the most memorable backing vocal performances from Malcolm and Angus as they huff and puff into the microphone, creating a great effect to accompany Bond's screaming style vocals. Along with this, Angus included a great hard-hitting rock and roll riff, with Malcolm ending the track with an iconic scream. Malcolm revealed that Angus had come up with the song title, as Angus was inspired by the American cartoon Beanie and Cecil that was made back in 1962, which aired in Australia when they were growing up. A particular dodgy character from the show, called Dishonest John, who was the main villain, would carry around a business card that said on it, quote, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, Holidays, Sundays and Special Rates. The song, however, takes on a much darker theme, relating to a hitman being the one to call if you need someone taken care of for an affordable price, as Bond refers to examples of what tasks the hitman can perform through payment or even sex such as a troublesome high school headmaster or principal stopping you from graduating without sleeping with them, a cheating boyfriend sleeping with your best friend, or a nagging wife who won't leave you be. As Bond lists off all the ways in which the deed can be done, such as high-voltage electroshock, signing a contract, cyanide poisoning, blowing them up with TNT, neckties, meaning the mutilation phrase Colombian necktie, and even concrete shoes, which involves weighing down a body and dumping them into water. Bon, or the hitman, even offers the woman who is being cheated on to come around for a good time, and for the others to call a particular number that reads 362436. Funnily enough, this number was actually a real number in both Australia and the US at the time, which caused all sorts of problems for the owner of this number. Norman and Marilyn White were the owners of this number in the US who hailed from Libertyville, Illinois and after receiving countless phone calls rumoured to be in the hundreds from fans of ACDC they decided to sue the band and Atlantic Records for invasion of privacy. Due to the word hey being added on to the end of the number it sounded like eight 
which was their number. The White family claimed they had received, quote, lewd, suggestive and threatening calls, and that many of them were asking for dirty deeds for cash, as the song mentions. However, after the Whites claimed that the song should be re-recorded, excluding their number, and that they wanted $250,000 in damages, it was thrown out of court and dismissed, with the song remaining exactly the same ever since. During November 1976, with ACDC's tour of the US being cancelled due to a lack of interest, ACDC continued gigging around the UK before travelling back to Australia in December 1976 to perform a number of gigs to put some more funds back into the band. More funds coming in meant they could have a further crack at the UK and Europe. While back in Australia, they recorded their fourth studio album, Let There Be Rock, at Albert Studios in Sydney, which was around the same time that they were copping flack by their label for the international release of the Dirty Deeds album. As bass player Mark Evans said, quote, There was always a siege mentality about that band, but once we all found out that Atlantic had knocked us back, the attitude was, fuck them, who the fuck do they think they are? So from that point onwards, it was, fuck, we'll show them. We were seriously fucking pissed off about it. It didn't need to be discussed. We were going to go in and make that album and shove it up their ass. From December 1976 to February 1977, ACDC balanced live gigs across Australia with recording their new album, including a performance on Countdown of Dirty Deeds. Yet again, Harry Vander and George Young would produce the album with more of an emphasis placed on adding more guitars into the recording process and a sound and lyrical style that would appeal more to the American market. After recording the album, the time came during mid-February to head back over to the UK and try to conquer the English crowds once again. Bond would say goodbye to Australia and sadly wouldn't return for a live gig there again for the remainder of his life. With ACDC disappointed in the shunning by the Australian media, who continued to paint them in a bad light, like they sold out on Australia for trying to make it overseas as they were referred to by the media as senseless punk rockers, despite their Aussie fans still adoring them. When they returned to the UK, ACDC travelled to as many clubs and bars as they could, wherever they could, into the month of March 1977, eventually earning themselves bigger gigs as they suited the larger arenas perfectly with their huge energy and sound. They didn't need fancy pyrotechnics or costume changes, they were just brilliant live musicians. On the 21st of March 1977, ACDC released their fourth studio album titled Let There Be Rock. The album was a hit in Europe and managed to chart at number 9 in France, 10 in the Netherlands and 12 in Switzerland, followed by number 17 in the UK and 19 in Australia. For the first time, ACDC would also taste their first success in the US, as they managed to make the Billboard 200 at number 154. To this day, the album has sold close to 3 million copies around the world, with the US claiming 2 million of them, as the band's popularity eventually grew over the years in the country. The album would be regarded amongst its fans as one of their best, and included great tracks such as Whole Lotta Rosie, Hell Ain't A Bad Place To Be, and Dog Eat Dog which was the first single from the album and released on the same day as the album's release. 
Dog Eat Dog was a hard rock track that speaks about the harsh reality of the music industry and everyday life as we know it, as the world is full of untrustworthy businessmen who are only out there to make a buck at your own expense. The catchy rock track, titled Go Down, is quite an easy one to make out if you listen closely to the sexualized lyrics, as Bond sings about a particular groupie known to him as Ruby Lips that enjoys performing oral sex while he also mentions another woman by the name of Mary, who enjoys this also in the song. One particular track that was released as a single, and is still a huge fan favourite today, is the track Whole Lotta Rosie, which became a hit around Europe, especially in the Netherlands, where it made it to the top five. Whole Lotta Rosie was written by Bon about a sexual experience he had back in ACDC's early days, when they were still touring the Australian scene, and living all together as a band in the same house in St Kilda in Melbourne. As Bond writes about a large woman who shocks him with her sexual performance in the bedroom. The woman in question was known as Big Bertha, being a large obese woman, and she was a Tasmanian groupie who enjoyed sleeping around with different bands. Bond claimed that he and Big Bertha had met after a show in Melbourne, where Bond ventured out to check out some clubs and only made it 100 yards down the road when he noticed some women, and Bon, as he usually does, asked, who wants it? Then unexpectedly, Big Bertha stepped forward, and Bon believes he was too scared to say no. They then checked in at the Freeway Gardens Motel in North Melbourne, where Bon slept with Bertha, and when they emerged, she said to her friend, who was there at the time, that's the 37th this month, or as Angus recalls, 29th this month, before pulling out a black journal and jotting down Bond's name as another of her sexual triumphs. Bond was quoted as saying, She was so big, she sort of closed the door and put it on your body, and she was too big to say no to. So I had to succumb. I had to do it. My God, I wish I hadn't. As Bond even goes as far as revealing the woman's measurements and sings, Want to tell you a story about a woman I know. When it comes to loving, she steals the show. She ain't exactly pretty, ain't exactly small. 42, 39, 56. You could say she's got it all. Never had a woman like you, doing all the things you do. Ain't no fairy story, ain't no skin and bones. But you give it all you got, weighing in at 19 stone. You're a whole lot of woman, whole lot of rosy. Before the song had been written, the band had been fiddling around with a Chuck Berry and Little Richard inspired track called Dirty Eyes, and while Bond liked the rhythm of the song, he didn't exactly like his own lyrics, so Bond instead used his experience with Big Bertha by writing lyrics for it and calling it Whole Lot of Rosie, with Rosie being the new name for Big Bertha of course. The song would continue to be a crowd favourite much later in ACDC's career, with a giant inflatable Rosie being used at live gigs. On the Let There Be Rock album, Bond continues to sing about troublesome women in his life, with the song Overdose being about a woman he can't get enough of, as he is addicted to her, but has caused him so much pain and devastation, much like drugs or alcohol can. While the song Hell Ain't A Bad Place To Be carries on similar themes of remaining with a woman who he finds irresistible, but is also no good for him. In this song, Bon appears to be really upset with how his woman is treating him emotionally, feeling as though she is playing mind games, and for once the shoe is on the other foot, and he seems to have feelings for her, but she does not feel the same. 
Hell ain't a bad place to be, exemplifies just how brilliant of a lyricist Bond can be, and is perhaps one of Bond's most poetic songs up to this point, as he sings, Sometimes I think this woman is kinda hot, sometimes I think this woman is sometimes not, puts me down, fool me around, why she do it to me, out for satisfaction, any piece of action, that ain't the way it should be, she needs lovin', knows I'm the man, she gotta see. Pours my beer, licks my ear, brings out the devil in me. Hell ain't a bad place to be. Spends my money, drinks my booze, stays out every night. But I got to thinking, hey just a minute, something ain't right. Delusions and confusion make me wanna cry. The shame you play in your games, telling me those lies. Don't mind her playing demon, as long as it's with me. If this is hell, then let me stay, it's heavenly. Hell ain't a bad place to be. The most successful single from the album, which was released later in the year, would be the title track Let There Be Rock, which managed to receive airplay all around the world. Let There Be Rock featured Bond preaching to the audience on the unofficial history of rock and roll, as he speaks about rock music as being godly and heaven sent, despite it often being associated with the devil in the past. The track features yet another brilliant Angus Young riff, and solo that sometimes during live performances could last up to 20 minutes in length. With Angus revealing, quote, I remember the amp literally exploded during the recording session. My brother watched it with crazed eyes and he told me, come on, keep on playing, while the stuff was steaming. A memorable music video for Let There Be Rock was shot at the Kirk Church in Surrey Hills in Sydney, with Bond dressed in a white robe like a preacher and he uses his infectious charisma and larrikin persona, with many cheeky glances and grins, into the camera, while Angus and the boys rock out on their instruments. Bond was really coming into his own at this stage, as the ultimate passionate frontman. He accentuated his lyrics, and you could tell that every word that came out of his mouth, he really felt. During April 1977, ACDC took on live gigs across Europe, as they toured with Black Sabbath, after somewhat settling their dispute enough to perform on the same bill. And although Bon and Ozzy Osbourne became great friends on the tour, the rest of the ACDC and Black Sabbath members didn't get along so well, with Malcolm Young claiming that Sabbath bass guitarist Geezer Butler had pulled a knife on him despite it being intended as a joke, although a dangerous one at that. Geezer Butler, on the other hand, claimed that no one got hurt and that they were all having a drink together backstage when Malcolm approached him. As Geezer told Paul Elliott, quote, No, I didn't pull a knife. I always had flick knives when I was growing up because everybody used to go around stabbing each other in Aston. Flick knives were banned in England, but when we were playing in Switzerland, I bought one. I was just flicking it when Malcolm Young came up to me and started slagging Sabbath. We were having a drink together and I was just playing about with the knife. I was really excited to get one again. I was having a drink flicking my knife, like you do, and he came over and said, you must think you're big having a flick knife. I said, what are you talking about? And that was it, nobody got hurt. On the other hand, Angus Young recalled the incident and revealed on the Talk is Jericho podcast, quote, the thing with Geezer Butler, I think they were drinking one night and I think Geezer had some knife or something, and he flashed it at Malcolm. Malcolm took it off. There's a trick of getting knives away from people, so Malcolm immediately did that, and he said, 
what are you going to do now? So it was just the case of that. Malcolm, he woke up the next day, felt bad about it because we were touring with them and he thought, I better go and say sorry about the night before. When Malcolm went there, he bumped into Ozzy and Ozzy said, what are you doing here? And Mouth said, I had a bit of a run with Geezer and his knife. And Ozzy said, him and that fucking knife. Don't apologise to him, Mal. Tell him to fuck off. According to Mark Evans, the feud between Malcolm and Geezer ended up in a punch-up, with Malcolm knocking Geezer out, and eventually ACDC were thrown off of the 12-date tour. Ozzy and Bon, however, remained close and would often go out on the town together, a combo that surely would have wreaked havoc together. After their upcoming fourth studio album, Let There Be Rock, had been recorded, Tensions started to rise within the band as Angus and Mark Evans began to clash over personal and creative differences. During May 1977, Mark Evans was officially sacked by ACDC after being a part of the band since recording of the TNT album. Despite being sacked, Mark stated, quote, Both me and the band are better for it. He also told AllMusic, quote, with Angus and Malcolm, they were put on this earth to form ACDC. They're committed big time, and if they feel your commitment is anything less than theirs, well, that's a problem. Angus was intense. He was ACDC 100%. His work ethic was unbelievable. When I was with him, he expected everybody to be just like him, which is pretty impossible. I felt the distance growing between me and Angus and Malcolm. When I was fired, it wasn't so much a surprise as it was a shock. There was a lot of tension in the band at the time. Mark Evans still thinks highly of the band and would go on to play in some reasonably successful bands called Finch, aka Contraband, Cheetah, and a heavy metal band called Heaven. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated as it means I can continue creating more content such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews, and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources, and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. 
Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. ACDC then began holding auditions for a new bass player. On the 27th of May, 1977, ACDC decided to officially make a 27-year-old Englishman by the name of Cliff Williams their brand new bass player, after passing the audition that involved four jam sessions. Cliff Williams, believe it or not, had a connection to TNT and Destruction, being a former demolition site worker, and had some success as part of a rock and roll band called Bandit. When Bandit broke up, Cliff was considering walking away from the industry altogether until a friend and fellow band member of Bandit, named Jimmy Liverland, told him about this Aussie rock band called ACDC and that he heard they were looking for a new bass guitarist. After applying for the audition and waiting to hear back, Cliff saw ACDC perform on top of the pops and was really impressed by them, calling them, quote, outrageous. According to members of ACDC, there were a number of reasons for Cliff becoming their new member, with Angus revealing that Cliff was a good-looking guy that would help attract more female fans to their gigs, while Malcolm claimed that with Mark, they had been lacking an extra backing vocalist that could sing well, and this was something that Cliff could offer while Bon revealed that the decision also came down to Cliff being much more experienced than Mark, with Cliff being around seven years older. As Cliff Williams revealed about the time when speaking to the Hard Rock magazine in 1996, quote, A friend of mine gave me a phone call telling me ACDC was looking for a bassist and that my name was on their list. The boys in the band thought they had greater chances to find the right man in England rather than in Australia because the talent pool was more important there. I was auditioned in a small room at the Victoria studio. The first tracks I played were Livewire and Problem Child and a few old blues songs if I remember well. The manager of the band told me I had the job. One of the major roadblocks ACDC encountered, however, was with his working permit or visa issues regarding Cliff being an Englishman, as they had difficulty trying to get him into Australia. Despite the trouble, they did however manage to get Cliff in, where they performed two secret shows at the Surf Lifesaver Club in Sydney during early July 1977, which would signal Cliff's very first gig with ACDC, as the new lineup consisted of Bon Scott, Angus and Malcolm Young, Phil Rudd, and Cliff Williams. Perhaps the best lineup the band would ever see. This was before they set off on their very first tour of the US, beginning on the 27th of July in Austin, Texas, where they played at the Armadillo World Headquarters as a support band for Canadian rockers Moxie. The gig was set to be a defining moment for ACDC, who were there to prove a point that evening. Tickets were just $5.50 at the door, with around 1,500 people in attendance, and ACDC, despite being the support act, made sure they were the showstopper. With Bon Scott providing his charismatic personality and an incredible vocal performance, and Angus being the other standout who took himself into the crowd and was literally walking on people's hands as they held him up while he played his Gibson SG. ACDC put on a show to remember, and for those that attended that evening, they wouldn't soon forget their name. With the help of booking agent Doug Failer of American Talent International, this led ACDC to be sought after by more venue owners across the country, 
who hired them as support acts, usually at gigs that charge $4 a ticket. In bars and clubs in New York, such as the famous CBGB, further gigs in San Francisco, Jacksonville, Kansas City, Detroit, Cleveland, Milwaukee and LA at the famous Whiskey A Go-Go. All these gigs providing them with incredible experiences and exposure as they toured with huge acts like UFO, Foreigner, Ted Nugent, Aerosmith, Kiss, Styx, Blue Oyster Cult and a co-headline show with Cheap Trick. ACDC worked extremely hard and never stopped. The road in the US at times was hell and they played everywhere they could in smaller towns to major cities just to get their name out there. Like they did in Australia and the UK, they slowly earned a reputation as the hardest working band around. Gene Simmons of KISS even came to see them at a show at the Whiskey A Go-Go and then recruited them to support KISS on their tour. ACDC wrapped up their tour of the US at the 4 O'Clock Club in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, finally achieving a goal to tour America that the band had set out so many years ago. ACDC then returned to Europe and the UK for more headlining gigs of their own, where they continued to be known as one of the hardest working bands in the industry and earned the nickname The Thunder from Down Under. During 1977, ACDC would continue to be questioned on the punk movement, with Malcolm telling Mojo Magazine's Phil Alexander, quote, Punk rock was just a fashion. It didn't change the music. It changed the fashion. And that's basically all it is. When Bond spoke to Molly Meldrum in 1977 for ABC's Countdown, Bond Scott was quoted as saying, We're pulling bigger crowds than they are. I mean, we've got our following here. It's not new wave, it's not punk, it's just people who like our band. We honestly thought that the punk and the new wave thing might spoil it a bit for us, but it hasn't at all. It was a big fad, just like anything else, a big fad for a while. The main thing about it is that it gave rock music a real kick in the guts. ACDC's popularity in the UK had now reached similar heights to what they had achieved in Australia, to the point where they could be booked almost anywhere. This led them to start setting their sights on the US now to complete the band's world domination. However, this would not be an easy task. During mid-November to the end of December 1977, ACDC returned to the US performing close to 20 gigs before planning on travelling back to Australia to spend Christmas with their families and then record their fifth studio album called Power Age in the new year. The Australian work permit, or visa, holding Englishman Cliff Williams back from entering the country was remaining an issue at this time, which they really needed to solve, as they now had to cancel scheduled shows that they were set to perform in the new year across Australia. Cliff Williams revealed to Hard Rock Magazine in 1996, quote, The plan was as follows. I was to leave London to Australia because we were supposed to prepare the recording of Power Age. But the Australian Immigration Department didn't act cool with me. The guy in charge of my file told me, I don't understand why a Brit got the job. An Australian could have had it. I answered, you're crazy. You could have me lose my job. Yes, I had a few problems, but finally I was able to go to Australia, where we recorded Power Age. With Cliff finally cleared to enter Australia, ACDC got to work on their upcoming album Power Age during the months of January to March 1978. Once again at Albert Studios in Sydney, 
with George Young and Harry Vander as the producers, and Bon, Angus and Malcolm sharing songwriting duties. It would be one of the first times that ACDC didn't play gigs while recording, due to the previous cancellations regarding Cliff Williams' working visa. Once the album was complete, it was business as usual for ACDC, who boarded yet another plane for the UK, where they gigged from April through to May 1978. On the 5th of May 1978, ACDC released their fifth studio album, titled Power Age. With the US clearly being their target audience, they would prove a tough nut to crack, as it was seen as too rough or abrasive by the US market, despite being their best charting album in the country to this point, at number 133 on the Billboard 200. It was once again popular in Europe and made the top 30 in Australia and the UK. To this day, it has sold around 2 million copies worldwide. It would also be the first ACDC album since their debut album to feature the least amount of memorable hit singles, with Rock and Roll Damnation being the only success, charting at number 24 in the UK. The album cover artwork, however, was one of their most memorable, featuring a possessed-looking Angus standing in a shocked state, almost like he is being electrocuted, as various coloured electrical wiring runs out through the arms in his jacket. Despite being met with mixed reviews by critics, Power Rage had a fairly different feel and sound to it than previous albums, and is an extremely underrated album, where as a band, they sounded incredibly tight and in sync, while adding a number of new techniques, both vocally and instrumentally. Power Rage is yet another fan favourite, and is even Malcolm's favourite album from his entire career, as he says, I know a lot of people respect it, a lot of real rock and roll ACDC fans, the real pure rock and roll guys. I think that's the most underrated album of them all. Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards and Eddie Van Halen, guitarist for Van Halen, also cite Power Age as their favourite ACDC album. The album actually showcases Bon Scott's incredible ability as a lyricist, with Down Payment Blues, Gimme a Bullet, Sin City, Gone Shootin' and What's Next to the Moon being remembered as masterpieces in terms of this ability. The track Down Payment Blues is a standout track on the album that sees Bond sing about spending money on a woman in order to impress her or win her over, despite not actually having any money himself and sending him broke. For example, in the song, he splurges on a Cadillac, champagne and buys himself a boat leaving him with little to no money to pay his rent, or even buy himself a new pair of shoes, or as he mentions in the lyrics, to feed his own cat. During the song, Bond mentions his lazy ways as a wannabe rock star in his early days of his career, which often landed him in trouble with his ex-wife Irene. While also mentioning that he is, quote, living off of a shoestring, a 50-cent millionaire, open to charity on rock and roll welfare. The track Sin City sees Bond sing about Las Vegas being the home of gambling, sex, drugs and booze as he describes Vegas as, quote, diamonds and dust due to Vegas being located in the Nevada desert. And he explains that while all that is exciting and enticing, it can also be quite dangerous. Bond also touches on the greed of these hungry businessmen who take advantage of the poor at places like casinos as they entice the vulnerable in with strippers, booze and the chance to win big. But how often do they actually win? By singing the great line, Ladders and snakes, ladders give, snakes take, 
Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. Ain't got a hope in hell, that's my belief. The track What's Next to the Moon sees the lyrics get quite dark as Bond tells the story of a deranged man that appears to be obsessed with a married woman who, despite his efforts, won't confess her love for him. The title of the song is suggested to represent the man's loneliness and desperation to feel loved. Due to this, the man takes her down to the train tracks and ties her down attempting to murder her and framing it as a suicide as he decides to give her one more chance to love him. Otherwise, she is as good as dead. Bond tells the dark story intensely as he mentions the train being a cannonball and the driver of the train being the engineer, wishing he had have stayed in bed and not been involved in the accident. As Bond sings, Well, I tied my baby to the railroad track, cannonball down the line, giving that woman just one more chance to give it to me one more time. Engineer wishing he was home in bed, dreaming about Casey Jones. Bond then captures a horrific image as the woman realises the train is coming towards her, as he sings, Wide-eyed woman half a mile ahead, thinking about broken bones. Bond then mentions that her husband is out of town and unable to come to her aid, with the line, Superman was out of town, come on honey, gotta change your tune, cause it's a long way down. Clark Kent looking for a free ride, thinking about Lois Lane, It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a suicide, and that'd be a shame. The man then attempts to carry out the murder before he is questioned by police and confesses to what he did, saying he didn't mean to hurt her and that it was instead, quote, a heart attack, meaning love or lack of, caused him to do it. In the track titled Gone Shootin', what appears on the surface as just another rock song is actually once again a brilliant example of Bond's incredible ability as a poetic songwriter. The song actually has a much deeper and incredibly sad meaning, as Bond sings about a former girlfriend who lost her way by using the drug heroin, said to have been his lover at the time, named Margaret Silver Smith. As mentioned before, it was suggested that Bond had experimented with the drug back in 1975 himself, but luckily was able to kick the habit, whereas the woman in question wasn't so lucky. Bond spoke about the song's meaning and was quoted as saying that it's about a lady who took it upon herself to do whatever she wanted to do. While Bond appeared hesitant to enter into the details of the song, if you read the lyrics carefully, it's clear to see that Bond is describing their relationship breakdown due to her drug use. It appears Bond attempts to snap her out of it, but she is far too headstrong and addicted to the drug to stop. He compares the feeling of losing the woman he loved or who she was as a person before the heroin use by comparing it to her leaving on a train without a proper goodbye. As he sings, Feel the pressure rise, hear the whistle blow, bought a ticket of her own accord, to I don't know. Packed your heart in a travelling bag and never said bye-bye. Something missing in the neighbourhood of her crying eyes. Bond then goes into a little more cryptic detail about her heroin use, using the slang term of gone shooting for shooting up and mentioning the spoon used for heating up the heroin prior to it being injected. As the lyrics read, I stirred my coffee with the same spoon, knew her favourite tune, gone shooting. My baby's gone shooting. Bond continues to describe how his girlfriend would shoot up as he sings, wrapped herself around like a second skin, as his girlfriend perhaps wraps a tourniquet around her arm to help her veins stand out, 
before injecting. As Bond continues with the line, back to her favourite nag, but she could never win. Bond cleverly uses gambling or betting on a horse race to describe the gamble of using the drug heroin being a dangerous one, with a nag being another term for a horse, and horse being slang for heroin. The cryptic lyrics continue, as Bond claims he went out of town only to return to find her overdosing on heroin and pills, as he sings, I took an offer in another town, she took another pill, she was running in an overdrive, a victim of overkill, she never made it past the bedroom door, what was she aiming for? Gone shooting, she's gone, 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 gone. Bond then asks the question of himself, quote, how am I going to get her down? only to realise that she is too far gone and had taken or used way too much and confirms that she had passed away through overdosing. Bond then finishes the song with a sad and emotional line that reads, I used to love her so. Silver Smith, however, didn't actually pass away in real life, but perhaps Bond wrote this as a way to get her to quit using, as this was bound to be the path that would ensure she meets this fate. Instead, she actually managed to live until the year 2016. Bond closes out the album with the song Kicked in the Teeth as he speaks about a woman who keeps two-timing him and sleeping with other men. The success of this album led to supporting tours with Alice Cooper and Van Halen in the States and during July 1978, ACDC supported arguably the biggest band in the US at the time, being Aerosmith where they were said to have stolen the show as Bond carried Angus on his shoulders into the crowd. This got the attention of a young, newly appointed president named Jerry Greenberg at the American Atlantic Records Company, who decided to sign ACDC. Jerry said, quote, When you see a crowd reaction and see a band live like that, let's just say the light bulb went off in my head and I got it. I said this could be our next big band. With ACDC signing on, this opened the door for more Aussie bands to transition to touring in the States, with Rose Tattoo led by Angry Anderson also following in their footsteps and being a hit with their rebel rock and attitude filled performances. Jerry then thought that perhaps it was time for new producers as he wanted to get ACDC onto US radio, as he said, quote, I just knew that if we made the right record with these guys, they were going to be enormous. While many were content with the Power Edge album, Bon Scott was also believed to be unhappy about how it performed and spoke out about Harry Vander and George Young needing to be replaced as their producers as he didn't believe they could take him to the next level and break America. This notion was backed by the American Atlantic Records Company who encouraged Bond to push for a replacement producer. Angus and Malcolm, however, were less than impressed with talks of replacing their older brother George and friend Harry Vander, as they felt a sense of loyalty towards them, and like they owed them for helping them get this far. They were especially pissed off at Atlantic Records, who were treating George and Harry like second-tier producers, when they were actually very successful and accomplished in their own right. Their stance, however, would be overruled, and a new producer was set to be lined up for them on their next album. Power Rage was technically the seventh album Vander and Young had produced for ACDC, and while they had done brilliant things to guide the band to this point, as well as the fact that Malcolm and Angus were upset over losing their brother and Harry Vander as producers, it was true that ACDC needed a fresh take on their music. 
So both George and Harry stepped aside, and the search began to find the perfect producer to suit their vision. George Young and Harry Vander would go on to write music and produce for Ted Mulry and John Paul Young, and worked with the likes of The Angels and Rose Tattoo. And both would contribute greatly to the Australian music scene by introducing Australian disco and a band of their own called Flash and the Pan, who scored a top five hit in Australia with the song Hey St. Peter. The first to get the new job as ACDC producer would be a well-renowned South African-born man named Eddie Kramer, who worked in the US and boasted of producing for the likes of Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin and Kiss. Atlantic Records had assigned Kramer to the role without the band's consent, and from the get-go, it was a disaster. They got to recording in Criteria Studios Miami, but the band and Eddie just didn't get along, and their vision for what the next album should be and sound like were completely on different levels. Jeff Barton quotes Malcolm Young in Guitar Legends magazine as he said, Kramer was a bit of a prat. He looked at Bon and said to us, Can your guy sing? He might have sat behind the knobs for Hendrix, but he's certainly not Hendrix. I can tell you that much. The boys then phoned up their manager Michael Browning and declared that this was just never going to work. Browning then got to work looking for a new producer and happened to be living with a young inexperienced producer at the time who was also South African named Robert John Lang, or also known as Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang had previously worked with the Boomtown Rats but would be exactly what they needed as he was young and didn't have the ego or authority to dominate the recording process and ACDC were able to take more control. Bon Scott told Ram Magazine, three weeks in Miami and we hadn't ridden a thing with Kramer. So one day we told him we were going to have a day off and not to bother coming in. This was Saturday and we snuck into the studio and on that one day we put down six songs, sent the tape to Lang and said, will you work with us? From December 1978 to April 1979, ACDC cancelled a tour of Japan and a show in LA, locking themselves away in the studio with the lineup of Bon, Angus, Malcolm, Phil Rudd and Cliff Williams still in place. The boys from ACDC hoped the next album would be a big one as they were still a generally poor band considering the success they had had so far and with Mutt Lang they hoped he could get them onto radio in the US. With Mutt joining as producer they left for Roundhouse Studio in Chalk Farm London to complete the album. The sessions were said to have been gruelling and the most intense and difficult the band had endured yet. They worked 15-hour sessions and solely focused on recording and writing quality tracks as opposed to gigging at the same time, something that was a completely new experience for them. Previously, they had only been in the studio for around three weeks before completing an album, but this time, they were in there for two to three months, day after day, for long hours. Mutt Lang was quite a strict producer, but the boys came to appreciate the serious approach he took to the band with Malcolm stating to Mojo Magazine, he liked the simplicity of a band. We were all minimalist. We felt it was the best way to be. He knew we were all dedicated, so he sort of got it. But he made sure the tracks were solid and he could hear if a snare just went off. Bon was also said to have received vocal and breathing training techniques from Mutt Lang to improve his range, with Mutt also being a quality singer himself and providing his backing vocals on a couple of tracks. Angus also told Mojo Magazine about Mutt that, quote, he was meticulous about sound, 
getting right guitars and drums. He would zero in, and he was good too on the vocal side. Even Bon was impressed with how he could get his voice to sound. Tour manager, Ian Jeffrey, was present during the sessions and was quoted as saying, Mutt took them through so many changes. I remember one day Bon coming in with his lyrics to If You Want Blood. He starts doing it and he's struggling, you know. There's more fucking breath than voice coming out. Mutt says to him, Listen, you've got to coordinate your breathing. Bon was like, You're so fucking good, cunt. You do it. Mutt sat in his seat and did it without standing up. That was when they all went, What the fucking hell we dealing with here? Mutt would also show Angus a thing or two when Ian Jeffrey was quoted as saying, Mutt said, Sit here and I'll tell you what I want you to play. Angus was like, You fucking will, will ya? But he sat next to Mutt and Mutt didn't force it on him. Just kind of pointed at the fretboard and hear this and hold that. And now go into that. It was the solo from Highway to Hell. It was fantastic, and that really stood them all to attention on Mutt too. He wasn't asking them to do anything he couldn't do himself, or getting on their case saying it's been wrong in the past. Nothing like that. He really massaged them into what became that album. Despite Browning helping to line them up with a new producer, he was sacked during the recording process and replaced by American Peter Mensch, who would help the likes of Aerosmith and Ted Nugent, and had an aggressive approach to managing the band, that would see them go a lot further. On the 13th of October 1978, ACDC released their first live album called If You Want Blood, You've Got It from their performance in Glasgow, Scotland at the Apollo Theatre and it became quite a popular live album selling well over 1 million copies. It would also prove to be the very last release by Vander and Young before Mutt Lang took over. From May through to August 1979, ACDC would continue to gig in the US to promote their music, even playing their first show in Canada at Massey Hall, Toronto. But while they were on this tour, on the 27th of July 1979, ACDC's sixth studio album, Highway to Hell, was released to the public. Highway to Hell would become their most commercially successful album so far, and would sadly signal Bon Scott's very last album of his lifetime. During 1979, Highway to Hell would reach number 2 in France, number 8 in the UK, 13 in Australia, while also charting inside the top 20 in Switzerland, in the US and the Netherlands. Over time, it sold over 8 million copies worldwide, with the US snapping up 7 million of them, proving their new polished sound suited the US audience perfectly and that it was a genuine success. The album was also credited for continuing to influence more bands to use two guitarists instead of one, while the combination of Cliff and Malcolm on backing vocals made for a more complete and well-rounded sound, making the album seem a lot bigger, louder and perfectly made for stadium audiences to sing along to. The lead single was also titled Highway to Hell and was also released on the very same day as the album on the 27th of July 1979. With arguably the most simple but memorable guitar riffs of all time, accompanied by the chanting vocals and anthem-style beat, Highway to Hell would be ACDC's ticket to their very first taste of success in the US, and would forever remain a classic song in rock and roll music. While it wasn't a huge number one hit, Highway to Hell would chart in the top 20 in Belgium and the Netherlands, and would become their first top 50 hit in the US, charting at number 47. Despite its lowly charting position, it did however receive mass airplay 
and would go on to be used in films, TV shows, and would even become the theme song in 2021 for WWE Smackdown. Highway to Hell is ranked number 258 on the Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time and is part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shape rock and roll list. Legendary guitarist Eddie Van Halen would claim this album along with Power Age are his favourite ACDC records of all time. While in Germany, despite peaking at number 30, it remained on their chart for a total of 45 weeks, an impressive feat to stay up for that long in the top 50. Before its release, they did come under some scrutiny by their label Atlantic Records over the title of the album and lead single, as it referred to the negative connotations surrounding Hell. It's also believed that Atlantic came close to scrapping the album altogether if they didn't change the name, which Angus believes he told Atlantic, quote, No way, no exceptions. Angus also told Guitar World's Alan DePerna in 1993, quote, Just because you call an album Highway to Hell, you get all kinds of grief, and all we'd done is describe what it's like to be on the road for four years, like we had been. A lot of it was bus and car touring, with no real break. You crawl off the bus at four o'clock in the morning, and some journalist doing a story and he says, what would you call an ACDC tour? Well, it was a highway to hell. It really was. When you're sleeping with the singer's socks two inches from your nose, that's pretty close to hell. The album cover artwork featured an image of the whole band with Angus wearing his schoolboy outfit, a tail and devil horns running with the theme, but not without further criticism from religious groups. ACDC were also accused of backmasking on the track Highway to Hell, which was a technique that at the time was being utilised by a lot of other bands and artists to sneak in messages, usually relating to the devil in songs, when played backwards, whether it be intentional or coincidental. With Angus stating, You didn't need to play the album backwards because we never hid the messages. We'd call an album Highway to Hell. There it was right in front of them. With all of these contributing factors, Christian lobbies actually held protests over their music and album cover, being suggestive of devil worship, and claimed that ACDC were writing their songs through the devil. When writing Highway to Hell, Bon Scott had more of a literal meaning in mind, and one that was different from touring America, as he was actually referring to the Canning Highway in Australia, running from his hometown in Fremantle, Western Australia, to his favourite pub called The Raffles, which was known at the time as a great gathering place for rock and roll gigs, and those that loved a drink. Towards The Raffles pub, as you head down the Canning Highway, the road dips into a steep decline, forcing the car to increase its speed, and when you're that far in the outback, many of the road rules tend to go out the window, as Bond sings the line, No stop signs, speed limits, nobody gonna slow me down. The problem with the steep decline, however, was that many pedestrians and motorists lost their lives at the intersection at the bottom of the road near the pub, as it was a really bad blind spot when you went to step out to cross the road to the pub, which is why Bon called the song Highway to Hell, as Bon hurdles down to the pub for a good drinking session with his mates, singing, going down, party time, my friends are gonna be there too. Like Angus had mentioned, Bon claimed at the time, quote, I've been on the road for 13 years. Planes, hotels, groupies, booze, they all scrape something from you. This statement was perhaps foretelling that Bon was burning out and struggling to keep on going 
with the wild party lifestyle he had been living for so long. While Phil Rudd said, quote, If you had been on the road with us for those years, up to that point, you would have known exactly what we were talking about. When Bond passed away around six months later from its release, the song had an eerie feel to it, with many feeling some lyrics were foretelling of Bond's future, with his drinking habits getting the better of him, and it seemed like he had a one-way ticket to hell, with the way he'd been behaving and not looking after himself, with the line reading, Hey Satan, paying my dues, playing in a rockin' band. Hey mama, look at me, I'm on my way to the promised land. When speaking about how the iconic riff for Highway to Hell came about, Malcolm said, quote, There were hundreds of riffs going down every day, but this one, we thought, that's good. It just stuck out like a dog's balls. Angus revealed to Rolling Stone magazine's Bill Crandall in 2003, quote, We were in Miami and we were flat broke. Malcolm and I were playing guitars in a rehearsal studio and I said, I think I have a good idea for an intro, which was the beginning of Highway to Hell. And he hopped on a drum kit and he banged out a beat for me. There was a guy in there working with us and he took the cassette home and gave it to his kid. And his kid unraveled it. Bond was good at fixing broken cassettes and he pasted it back together. So at least we didn't lose the tune. For the rest of the year from August to December 1979, ACDC would tour the US, UK and Europe as ACDC looked to cement themselves as a global heavyweight of rock and roll. The next single released from Highway to Hell was titled Girls Got Rhythm, which was released on the 6th of November 1979 and was clearly a standout track on the album with a great heavy rock and roll rhythm and Mutt Lang's polished production style, which was paying off. The boys had never seemed tighter as a band and Bond's vocals had gone to another level. Girls Got Rhythm was said to have been one of the last songs Bond had written for the album, which sees Bond singing about all the ways his woman knows how to please him in the bedroom, as well as being irresistible, from the way she walks to the way she dresses. Bond mentions he has been all around the world and been with many women, but no one comes close to this particular woman. The track, however, failed to chart in the UK and around Europe, despite an appearance on Top of the Pops but it did happen to receive mass airplay on US rock stations. The Highway to Hell album is solid from start to finish, with most of the album discussing the tales of life on the road, with sex, booze, the party lifestyle, and lust all being a driving force in the lyrics. With Walk All Over You, displaying Angus's ability as a great lead guitarist, followed by the fast-paced rock song, Beating Around the Bush, which sees Bond speak about his woman lying to him and being unfaithful with the line, But where were you last night? Beating around the bush. Referring to the men she was potentially having sex with and referring to her pubic region being the bush. In the track Shot Down in Flames, Bond sings about the rude or sometimes cheesy pickup lines he uses on women, usually landing him in hot water and being rejected as he refers to one woman during the song as looking like a prostitute, while the other already has a man. As Bond sings the lines, she was standing alone over by the jukebox, like she's something to sell. I said, baby, what's the going price? She told me to go to hell. Shot down in flames. Shot down in flames. Ain't it a shame to be shot down in flames? And the line, said, baby, you're driving me crazy. Laid it out on the line. When a guy with a chip on his shoulder said, Toss off buddy, she's mine. 
Bond then calls for Angus to shoot him by firing off an electric guitar solo. Get It Hot is up next as Bond sings about heading out on the town partying, while Night Prowler wraps up the album with a much different bluesy slow-paced beat. As Bond shows off his brilliant vocal range and on face value appears to describe the dark tale of a sinister man that attempts to murder and potentially rape a woman after slipping into her bedroom window at midnight after developing an infatuation for her. While the lyrics obviously depict this, and it is by far the most controversial song ACDC had done so far, Angus claims the source of inspiration for the song actually came from something a bit different. As he told Vulture, quote, The song itself isn't about any stalker or evil person. The idea came from when I was young, growing up in suburban Australia. We didn't have air conditioning, and it was very hot. So if it was a very hot night, I'd open up the window. There was an alleyway next to our house, and I used to get all of these animal night visitors. Sometimes they'd jump on the window ledge, or attempt to come in. I'd see their shadows on the wall. These animals were always having a party late at night. For me, they were the night prowlers. The idea behind that track was more about nature. People like to take something and make it into what it's not intended to be. Angus, of course, would be referring here to an incident involving a serial killer being linked to the band, which would occur many years down the track, which will be touched on later in the episode. The song Night Prowler ends with Bond quoting one of his favourite actors and comedians, Robin Williams, from the comedy TV show Mork and Mindy, where he says, Shazbot Nanu Nanu, which is the language the character Mork used to use to end transmissions to his home planet and translates to shit goodbye. Night Prowler would become the last song to ever be recorded by Bon Scott for an ACDC album. On the 27th of December 1979, Malcolm Young became a married man when he tied the knot with Linda, where the two went on to have two children, a boy named Ross and a girl named Clara. When ACDC weren't touring, they settled into the city of Sarasota in Florida, in the US. Malcolm's little brother Angus wouldn't be too far behind him, marrying a Dutch woman named Ellen Van Lockham the following year in 1980. Angus and Ellen wouldn't have any children of their own, but went on to own a number of properties in Australia, the UK, and the Netherlands. ACDC bass player Cliff Williams also married a woman named Georgianne that same year, where the pair would later have two children, named Erin and Luke, in the mid-80s, and after living in Hawaii, they too decided to move to Florida. Between December 1979 and January 1980, ACDC released their third single from the Highway to Hell album called Touch Too Much. As Bond sings about the fact that sometimes too much of a good thing, such as drugs, booze, and especially sex, can be dangerous. The woman in question in this song is just too good at what she does in the bedroom, and his addiction to her becomes detrimental to his health, which only makes him want her more and more. The song had actually been first written back in 1977 and had been altered lyrically a number of times before it finally made the cut on the Highway to Hell album, becoming a top 20 hit in Germany and reaching number 29 in the UK. The success of Highway to Hell was great for Bon and he was loving the fact that more money was now coming in, as he used some of this money to buy himself some replacement teeth, as he had always been getting around with broken or missing teeth for quite some time, after getting involved in fights. 
At this stage, however, it seemed as though Australia had lost its mojo for ACDC, and it had a lot to do with the shunning of the band for supposedly selling out for the international market. Sadly, ACDC wouldn't return to Australia to gig before Bond's death. On the 27th of January 1980, at a concert in Southampton in the UK, little did ACDC know that it would prove to be Bond's very last gig with the band. On the 7th of February 1980, Bond appeared on the BBC music show Top of the Pops, performing Touch Too Much with ACDC, which would officially mark his final TV appearance. Over the next few days, Bond travelled with Rose Tattoo guitarist Mick Cox to Scorpio Sound Studio in London to meet with the French heavy rock band Trust, who also happened to be great friends of Bond's. Trust at the time happened to be recording their album Repression, including the popular track Antisocial, where they happened to record a jam session cover of ACDC's Ride On, with Bond joining them on vocals. This would go down as the very last recording Bond ever did. It was during January 1980 where ACDC returned to London with pressure from Atlantic Records mounting on the band to go bigger and better on their next album. On the 15th of February 1980, Bond was invited to attend a jam session in London with Malcolm and Angus to showcase what the pair had been working on and begin preparations for the band's 7th studio album, which would later be titled Back in Black. It was here where Malcolm and Angus laid down the rhythm to the songs Have a Drink on Me and Let Me Put My Love Into You, with Bond jumping on drums instead of adding vocals or lyrics just yet. Bond really liked what the boys had come up with on guitar and knew this album was going to be a big hit. When the boys finished the session that day, they never knew it would be the very last time they would ever see Bond again. Despite Bond becoming a legend amongst their fans and ACDC starting to rise to the top of the crop, over the past few months, Bond had been drinking more heavily than usual, with many claiming that the drink often spoiled Bond and would one day catch up to him. While he was having the time of his life, the drinking had become a non-stop occurrence. He was getting drunk every night, getting in fights and reportedly getting girls pregnant, as he would sometimes have as many as four girls at once in his room especially while touring the US, as it all got a bit too much. Drugs and alcohol started to dictate his life, and there wasn't any times where he was putting down the bottle, with Bon always leading the party and wanting to keep it going until early hours of the morning. As Malcolm told VH1's Behind the Music, quote, We'd go back to the hotel and we'd say, Bon, it's three in the morning, we got a crash, and he would go, just one more drink. We'd wake up in the morning tell Bond to wake up, and he would get back onto his drink and say, oh, where were we? Bond also revealed at the time that perhaps he was burning out as a rock star, that the busy touring schedule was taking its toll, and was needing to slow things down as he was out of control, as he was quoted as saying, we've been working non-stop since the band started, you just gotta have a break occasionally. It was quite possible that Bond was feeling his loneliness that he often wrote about in his lyrics with alcohol, as many who develop drinking problems suffer from. It was that hard to tell Bond to settle down with the drink that not even his beloved mother Isa could get him to stop despite her efforts, as she was quoted as saying, You didn't tell Bond what to do. I never went too far. I just said I didn't like him drinking. But when they get to that stage, they don't listen to you. 
ACDC's ex-manager Michael Browning said he remembered Bon often wound up in hospital beds, passed out from taking too many pills, drinking too heavily or arrested for fights by the police, with Browning often bailing him out. Browning also remembers Bon telling him he didn't want to live past 40, but didn't actually think too much into it at the time. Vince Lovegrove believes he visited Bon in the US, and while they shared some drinks, that Bon revealed to him that he was tired of touring and that he needed a break. He also claimed he was envious of Vince, leading a generally normal and settled life. He even suggested the prospect of retiring to the countryside to play his guitar, and that he could do it, as a lot of money was about to come in from royalties. ACDC would be on the brink of greatness. They had finally struck gold in the US and UK, performing huge shows and reaching incredible heights, as their hard work had all paid off, when they were set to start recording and writing for their next album. And Bon was excited for what was to come, as ACDC set to bring their hard-hitting rock and roll style into the decade of the 80s. Just days out from Bond's untimely death, Malcolm recalls Bond being in high spirits and quite happy. Malcolm and Angus usually spent time in the studio working on the rhythm and arrangement of their music before getting Bond and the rest of the band to come in, with Malcolm phoning Bond up to tell him, quote, We're just about ready for you, Bond, so maybe next week sometime. But next week would sadly never come for Bond Scott. He would never make it back to the studio. Tragically, on the 19th of February, 1980, 33-year-old Bon Scott was pronounced dead, sending the music industry and world into shock. In the lead-up to his death on a Tuesday night, the 19th of February, Bon had ventured out for a night on the town with his friend and music journalist Alastair Kinnear on a cold winter's night. Bon was said to have been meeting up with his ex-girlfriend at the time, named Margaret Silver Smith, who was known to have a controversial reputation and was a heavy user of heroin. They were set to meet up to go and see a band at a venue known as Dingwalls in Camden, but these plans fell through and Alastair Kinnear was sent out on the town with Bon instead. Bon and Kinnear found themselves attending a club called The Music Machine, located in London, close by to Dingwalls, where obviously a night of heavy drinking transpired. As Malcolm said, quote, He just went out for a drink, for relaxation, maybe to clear his head and then look forward to getting into his writing with his ideas. He had it all in front of him. As the night of drinking drew to a close, Alastair Kinnear decided to drive a heavily intoxicated Bon Scott back to Bon's place, but realised that he was in no shape to look after himself. Instead, Kinnear decided to drive to his own home at 67 Overhill Road, in East Dulwich, in south-east London, in his French Super Mini Renault motor vehicle, only to notice when he arrived that Bon had passed out in the back seat. As Bon looked peaceful and Kinnear decided he didn't want to wake him, he left Bon on the back seat and returned with a blanket to put on him to keep him warm from the cold winter night. Kinnear also checked with Margaret Smith by ringing her and she too said to leave him in the car. Kinnear also left a note detailing instructions on how to get into his apartment should Bon wake up. Then Kinnear went back inside his house to go to bed as Bon was left alone in the car. Bon had spent many nights sleeping on the back seat of cars, so Kinnear didn't really see it as an issue. Then during the night, or the early hours of the morning on the 20th of February 1980, 
Kinnear came out to check on Bon, only to find him unresponsive and lifeless. Kinnear quickly phoned emergency services as Bon was rushed to King's College Hospital in Camberwell in South London, but it was already too late and Bon was pronounced dead on arrival. It was later discovered that Bon had asphyxiated or vomited in his sleep with the position he was laying in on his back, causing him to choke to death, which is also known as pulmonary aspiration. The coroner concluded on Bond's death certificate that he had in fact died of acute alcohol poisoning and death by misadventure. However, there were some that claimed the death was slightly suspicious or even misinformed, with the timing of Bond's death being off and that others happened to be there at the time, as UFO guitarist Paul Chapman claims, he and a friend of Bond's named Joe Fury were with him on the evening of the 18th of February, the night prior to his death, when Bond split to purchase some heroin, and that was the last they saw of him. As author Jesse Fink, of the book Bond, The Last Highway highlights, two more people named Zena Kakuli and her rock musician husband Peter Perrett had stayed with them that evening and had travelled back to Kinnear's apartment, raising questions to why they weren't mentioned, if they were in fact there at all. Jesse Fink concludes his book that he believes Bond choked through pulmonary aspiration after using heroin, which had often been linked to Bond as a drug he occasionally used, but this was never confirmed. And while the cold weather was said to have potentially caused hypothermia, with Bond's asthma coming into play, Fink displayed records that the temperature on this particular evening was above average and wasn't as cold as first suggested. So while it remains Bond choked on his own vomit through alcohol poisoning, there still remains some sense of mystery around his death, with some theories even suggesting foul play. The first to learn of Bond's passing would be ACDC's manager Peter Mensch, who straight away phoned Angus, who was absolutely devastated by the news. Next to hear of the news was Malcolm, who said, quote, Angus called me. I was totally stunned. You can't explain a death and how it affects you. Everything is just numb. It's as simple as that. Within hours, all the members of ACDC had found out, with Phil Rudd saying he just felt completely numb after hearing the news. Next was the media, who got wind of the news and ran riot with the story, especially in the UK, where it turned into a major scandal and all sorts of nasty conspiracies arose, even suggesting that Bonner died from inhaling exhaust fumes and other crazy suggestions. One major headline at the time read, Rock singer left in car to sober up, found dead, while others were equally as insensitive and inaccurate, reading, Drink spree pop man dies, and pop star dies after booze up. The media as usual were brutal, so Malcolm decided he needed to act fast and inform Bond's family back in Australia before the news reached the country. As he said, quote, Someone had to tell them, better coming from one of the band than the newspapers. Most difficult thing I've ever had to do. God knows how they felt. I hope I never have to do anything like that again. Bond's mother Isa was the one to pick up the phone when Malcolm rang and revealed in an interview with VH1's Behind the Music, quote, Over the phone, got the shock of my life. I thought it was him on the other end of the phone and I just screamed. Malcolm Young was especially furious with the lack of compassion the British media showed at the time, treating Bon as another no-good degenerate rock star, rather than for what good he brought to the world. 
Yes, he was a wild man, but Bon had many great qualities that made him a respected and loved man. Malcolm was quoted as saying, Especially Britain, they make it a bit of a joke almost, and we've never forgiven them for that. All we were concerned about mainly at the time was Bon's parents. They're really nice people. They don't need this shit. ACDC as a unit then decided to stop answering questions by the media, refusing to comment or conduct interviews as a show of respect for Bond's family and friends so they could all mourn in peace. Isa, however, would often become upset by the reporters as they clouded the media for some time, as she said, quote, I just had to skip over the bad bits. Singer of the rock group ACDC was found dead last night in a parked car in South London. Scotland Yard said the body of 30-year-old Bon Scott was discovered by a friend who had left him in the car hours earlier to sober up after a day's drinking. We talked to Rick Davies of Capital Radio in London, and he filed this report. The friend who discovered Scott being unconscious, Alistair Kinnear, uh, said that uh, he met up with Bon to go to a music club in London, the music machine, last night. But he was pretty drunk when I picked him up. Uh, then Scott apparently got there and they drank several more whiskeys. Scott's known for having uh, been a heavy drinker. And also, in 1973, when he was still in Australia, he was forced to stop singing for a while because of his drug problems. So yes, the suspicions are that this was uh, the result of some heavy drinking. Uh, earlier this uh, earlier this week, um, there was some uh, very very sad news hit Australia, and it was sad indeed for the Australian rock scene. And that was the death of one of the what in my mind is one of the greatest Australian rock and rollers we've had over the past ten years. And I'm talking about the lead singer of ACDC, Bon Scott. Uh, not only was he a friend of mine, and it shocked me deeply that he uh, that he died in London, but I think it's a great blow to the Australian industry and especially to ACDC in the fact that uh, the boys were breaking it so big in Europe and England and were about to become one of the world top supergroups um, in the world in 1980. The loss of Bon um, is, uh, is something that you can't express because it's something personally, uh, personal within yourself. The only thing I can say is that I've known him for a long, long time. He's, I knew him when he was in the Valentines in the 60s. He's always been one of the greatest showmen I've ever met. He had so much energy and his loss, well, I just can't, I mean, what can you say? The loss of Bon Scott was huge for his ACDC family and their many adoring fans around the world, especially in Australia, where today he is still highly regarded as one of the greatest frontmen of Australian music, with his down-to-earth larrikin persona epitomising the true blue Australian culture. He made many great mates along the way who lived on to share hilarious and incredible memories of him, like Thin Lizzy guitarist Scott Gorham, who was quoted as saying, The thing that was really cool about Bon is he brought his own bottle of whiskey and he brought his own glass. Despite the doom and gloom, Bon's death would bring the band closer than ever and he was like a brother to them. As Angus was quoted as saying, When you're younger, you don't really think death is something that will touch you. I'd never really had that tragedy that close and especially someone like Bon, who is just one of those things where one day someone's there, and the next day, it's so hard to believe they're not. Together, Malcolm and Angus, along with Phil Rudd and Cliff Williams, decided to suspend any work on their seventh studio album, as it was the furthest thing from their mind as they headed back to Australia for Bond's funeral and to support Bond's parents. On the 1st of March 1980, 
Bond's ashes were interred or buried by his family at Fremantle Cemetery in Western Australia, the place Bond called home as a youngster. A small plaque remembering Bond now sits in its place where fans still visit the site to this very day to remember the fallen star as they leave flowers, whiskey, beer bottles and even messages for him. After the funeral, the feeling amongst the remaining members of ACDC was a sombre one as they discussed quitting altogether. Bond's death had almost destroyed the band. As Malcolm recalled that in a way they wanted to continue, but they had lost all the drive and motivation they had. But Bond's parents were the first to encourage the boys not to give up and told them that Bond would have wanted them to continue on as a band, which they agreed to, as he most definitely would have wanted that. With Bond's parents' blessing, the boys suddenly felt the motivation to continue on, and they decided to give it another crack as they got to work on hiring a new lead singer. The problem was, they knew it would be a mammoth task to replace the charismatic Bon Scott, that the fans may struggle to accept a new singer, and they wondered if they had any chance at all of achieving the same success or go further now that Bon was gone. Next time on Lyrics of Their Life podcast, we take a look at the Brian Johnson era as ACDC attempt to stage a comeback after Bon Scott's passing. Thank you all so much for joining me for that story. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from Season 1 and 2. You can also find us on social media at places like Facebook and Instagram. If you're really enjoying the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive notifications when new episodes become available direct to you. If you would like to support the podcast that one step further, then feel free to head to our Patreon page or buymeacoffee.com where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. Once again, thank you all for listening. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is Lyrics of Their Life.